We're in a message called Biblical Revitalization. Little did I know that one Sunday we're turning to three and looks like possibly even four if we don't finish it this morning. And a new message I prepared a couple weeks ago from the book of Nehemiah that kind of gives us and unfolds us uh, some things we're considering in a church that's longing for revival and uh, looking for some things we would call revitalization where things uh, that have lost their strength and their energy can be restored and renewed to health and vibrancy. The goal is for the glory of God, and the ministry plans and the vision fits that. It's the obedience to what the Scripture has given to the church, and uh, that's what I'll be preaching out these next few weeks as we're thinking about uh, putting things in order according for God's glory to be seen and visualized through the working inside the church. So biblical revitalization, we're going through the book of Nehemiah quickly, and today we're in chapter number 2. So if you will, go with me to verse number 12. Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, and then I rose in the night, and I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent wall well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So, verse 15, I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I'd done. I'd not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Will you rebel, rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. I'm going to take this passage and go through it for just a few minutes this morning, but I feel like it would be helpful to review where we've been the last couple of weeks. Uh, we started off uh, with an understanding by way of introducing the message, there's hope for every church in need, regardless of their health and or their condition. There's hope for every church that has a need, regardless of their health or their condition. And that is true because Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians, Colossians 1.18, we are a purchased and a prized possession of the Lord by redemption, Ephesians 1.4. We're more than conquerors through Christ, Romans 8, 37. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think about. We speak about the glory of God in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. That's found in Ephesians 3, verse 20. 
and verse 21, that he dwells, the glory of God, that Christ may dwell his glory inside the church, Ephesians 3.21, and then Ephesians 5.27, that it might be a glorious church without spot or any blemish at all, Ephesians 5.27. There's hope for every church, regardless of their present condition. And I hope you feel that way about your church. And I hope that you sense that from the Lord. Uh, there's something that God wants to do and is able to do above anything we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. Through the members of the congregation, God is able to do something tremendous in the church. And so there's wonderful hope. Uh, what would it be like to attend a church that had no hope? And be a member of a church that was hopeless and helpless Regardless of any condition or any need in the church, there remains the hope that is ours. Notice in Nehemiah the condition for revitalization. We found in verse number one, uh, chapter one, verse number three, uh, this picture that we're going to bring concerning the church in just a moment if we can. But this story in Nehemiah unfolds a horrible situation. The walls have been ruined for 150 years. Nehemiah hears this story some 800 miles away, and he says in verse number three, where there's great distress and reproach and the walls are broken down, it caused him to cry and to weep, verse number four, chapter one, and to sit down and mourn for certain days, for about four months, actually. And uh, as he had the emotional condition of himself that was through brokenness of just the news that he heard, when you read verse 4 down to the rest of chapter, chapter number 1, he starts crying to God and also confessing. He's confessing the sins of Israel. He's confessing his own sins and his wrongdoing. There's something that he says when he sees these ruined walls. He said, we've done something to cause these walls to be ruined. We've done something to verse number 3 to be a reproach. We, we, we've done something to have such distress among Jerusalem and he begins to see, after he recognized the real condition that Jerusalem was in, he looked inward through an attitude of repentance and confessed the wrongdoing of the people of God for many years. Now, if you know the Old Testament, coming from Exodus all the way forward to where you are about four or 500 years before Christ in the book of Nehemiah, you see all the waywardness of God's people. You see their rebellion. You see their sinfulness. You see their murmuring and their complaining and actually walking away from the obedience of God Almighty. And then you begin to see God's judging hand upon them. You see it in the Exodus as they're going down into, out of Egypt and, uh, and, uh, and all the wanderings. You see them in all the wars, the imprisonments. And at this present time, they're in a captivity in Babylon, miles away, that has left them in places far from where God designed them to be in their own homeland. So Nehemiah walks through a confession. Uh, you know, uh, in the weeks ahead, I'm praying as we get started talking about Salem and start moving in transitional work here in the church in the interim period. And we begin focusing on God's glory once again. That it might cause a few of us around here, hopefully the entire church, to come to a place of confession after coming to a place of realization, when you see the real condition and the real need of Salem Baptist Church, 
I doubt we'll be shouting outside the streets here and running these hallways and singing a whole lot of happy songs. More than likely, when we see our real condition for God, it brings us to a place of brokenness and repentance and confession of the real condition that we are in that's moved us away from the glory of God. By the way, the first step towards revival is always repentance. The first step. Actually, it's the second step. The first one is the recognition that I have sinned. I have erred. I'm far from God. I've wandered far away from God. And you notice and recognize your present condition and the place that you are. It brings you that next step of repentance. And there'll never be revitalization in a home, in a person's personal life, or in a spiritual community, or in a church itself if people don't walk through times of confession and repentance to God to recognize why the glory is departed and why the things that are allowed in the scriptures that we can enjoy are absent in our lives. Where's the peace? Where's the soul winning? Where are the baptisms? Where's the happy homes that are, that are united in, in, in God's glory, the marriages and the godly heritage of our children? Well, where is it in our lives that Where's our power as Christians? Where's the, the real obvious presence of God moving and flowing through us when we recognize a real condition? We begin to ask ourselves, what is it? So we noticed last week it brought them to a confession. And then it appeared in the first part of chapter 2. Nehemiah began to realize there's something he needed to do beyond confessing. He needed to make a turn and start doing something different and make a difference. And so we started gathering some help from the outside. You notice that. And we noticed in our text last week, after the cry and confession, he had some connections toward his revitalization. He talked with the king and talked with the queen, and he talked to other men to join him in this journey. He, he, he talked to Asaph, the keeper of the forest, that he could collect wood. And, and he, he got outsiders to begin this journey of revitalization that even before he got to Jerusalem, the plan was being developed. But then notice in verse number 12, we begin seeing the fourth thing, and that is the consensus for revitalization. And that's the lesson I want to bring to you this morning. There's a consensus among the people to rebuild these walls. Notice the connections were on the outside of Jerusalem. These were people that weren't even ever a part of Jerusalem except Nehemiah himself. Nehemiah ever, never lived in Jerusalem himself. He was a Jew. His ancestry was from Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, his heritage as he grew up was far away in other provinces, other lands. And so 800 miles away as an outsider, he journeys back towards Jerusalem. He gets a, he gets a connection from the king and the queen and, the, and, and, and other men to go with him. And, and uh, he's gathering people that that uh, as he's as he walking through the places with the governors, he has to make connections with the governors as he passes through there. And he's going through the forest and making sure he's got permission to cut the wood and the timbers that are needed to do the work that he needed to revitalize. But when you come to chapter 12, he's now inside Jerusalem, verse number 11. Look at it. So I came to Jerusalem. I've been here three days. And notice what happens as he begins a consensus with the congregation. Now he's talking to the people inside Jerusalem. And by the way, same process you see here in Nehemiah 
fits very well the transition process that can happen to Salem Baptist this coming year. There not only needs to be the connection with the outside, but there needs to be the consultation or the consensus from the people within the church. Look at you in these few passages here. We read these next few verses. These are the people on the inside. And for a church to be revitalized, there has to be consensus with the people that are sitting in the pews. There has to be a consensus. There has to be involvement. There has to be considerations. There has to be some decisions that we made among the congregation. And so the consensus is being developed here. So I hope that you'll take good note and understand what this looks like when we talk about the consensus that is needed for revitalization inside of a church. Similar process that will involve ourselves here at Salem Baptist. Notice, if you will, the consensus that was needed. Look in verse number 12. I rose in the night, and I have a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one which I rode. So it was a small crowd as he gets into Jerusalem. He's got a few men. Then look down to verse 16 and 17. The numbers inside begin to grow. He begins to notice the officials that are there. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I'd done. We'll review that in just a moment. I'd not yet told the Jews that was their homeland in Jerusalem, nor the priest, the nobles or the officials or others inside Jerusalem who did the work. But verse number 17, he opens his mouth and begins to speak to the people inside Jerusalem. These are ecclesiastical leaders or political leaders or the people, the, the, the residents of Jerusalem. And then he said to all of them, he said it to the people, he said it to the rulers, he said it to the officials and the nobles. He said, you see the distress that we are in. I can see him coming to a transitional meeting at a church and saying, hey, church, we see the distress that we are in. Looking at the members that are present, you've got the leaders of the church present, the officials of the church are present, you've got the members present, you've got others present, and now he has a consensus with the people that reside in Jerusalem. And he announces with that consensus the condition that he noted already back in verse number 3 of chapter 1, only what he heard about. So before he began to speak to the congregation, notice what Nehemiah did with his little group of few men. They began doing some work. Now, this was maybe the transition team. I don't know. But look at it, if you will. Back to verse number 13. And those that were with me, he said, went by the night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate, and we viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. We continued riding by the other gates in verse number 15. In the night valley, we also viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate. And so we returned. And then they went back in the center of the officials and began to tell them what they had seen. Notice what is happening with this consensus. It's something that will happen our journey these next couple months. And that is, they began taking an assessment of the real condition there. They'd only heard about it in chapter 1. But now, 
They're seeing it firsthand. They got a better picture of it. They viewed the walls. That word viewed in our Hebrew text, it's like probing and looking closely into a wound. That's the word viewed there. We, we looked into the brokenness. We looked into the tears and the separations. We, we looked into uh, the, the effect it was having, and we studied and we viewed. He didn't do that in chapter 1. But now he's taking the time that he needs to carefully assess the condition of Jerusalem with his own eyes and the few men that were with him. And they viewed and they viewed how important it is to have assessment. I think it's good. Uh, my wife and I have been married 48 plus years. And time to time, you know what we sit down and do? From time to time, we have an assessment. Baby, where have we been? Baby, how much do we have? How fruitful is this happening? How productive are we? Is our money making any money for us? How much do we have? How much? Do, and we begin to assess the condition that we're in. Sometimes it's on the physical side as to how we're doing in our physical journey and our health and so forth. Sometimes it's with our children. Baby, how'd we do? We raised three boys, two boys and a girl. They're 43 and 41 and 39 years of age. How, how'd we do? What, what? And we begin to assess how we were as parents. Now we got these grandbabies, and we got six of them, and we begin to assess, well, baby, how are we doing as grandparents? And we begin to think about our involvement and our help. And uh, by the way, a little secret, don't tell anybody this, but often I'm given an invitation to consider moving to another place outside of the triad to pastor or to be an assistant pastor, do whatever in ministry. And uh, as soon as I get that call, I, I, I settled really quick. I said, you know, God has me right here. <laughs> I know my assignment. And that is, uh, I'm right here. God has placed me here. I know it's the will of God for me. And the big picture of that isn't Salem Baptist Church. It's my kids and my grandkids. And oh, by the way, two great-grandbabies, too. It's our assignment. Baby, how are we doing? And we begin to assess and evaluate and walk through we look at the scoreboard, see how many touchdowns we scored. We also look how many times we fumbled the ball, how many mistakes we made. We, we talk about how we could do something maybe better, assessment. You know, you'd be wise to do that in your personal life from time to time. You just sit down, take the time, time out, slow it down, and you go look deep inside your heart and see how God sees you in your own condition as he sees you. And you begin to assess and evaluate the spiritual qualities. And then you begin to see the things in your life that cause you to lead and go toward repentance. There's assessment as well. And that's all he's doing here. He's just on his horse, riding around town. He's got his iPad out. He's taking notes. He's not. He's writing it all down. He'd only heard about it. But now he sees firsthand and he's assessing. It's wise to do that. And in the interim period when a church has a transition pastor and is in a transition season preparing for the next pastor to come, you began to do things along the line of thinking about improvement and maybe some additions and maybe some rearranging. But it also start, it always starts with taking time to do the assessment. And so it's needed inside the church. Leaders need to be assessed. And perhaps that'll happen this coming few weeks. And then ministries need to be assessed. And the fruit of the ministry needs to be looked at. 
And what is it that are the weights that's holding us back? And maybe what are the sins that are inside the congregation? What, what's going on? What's our real condition? Let's talk about it. Hey, family, let's get together and have a conversation and assess the real condition of Salem, the church, the people that we're members and body together with Christ being our head. So they go through an assessment to see the real condition. And as you notice that, you notice the ways in the church. You begin to assess the ways in the church, the systems and the structures in the church, and you begin looking at that. You notice the good things and the valuable things and the, and the things that have tremendous legacy and power and fruit and ministry, and you make note of those things and you put them over there. You notice the people in the church. The, you notice their spirit, and you begin recognizing the spiritual condition when, you, when, when the family sits down and takes some assessment together. You look at the ministries, and you begin, boy, this is wonderful how God has blessed and, and, and provided and nurtured and empowered the church. And it's an assignment that's been given to Satan that God has allowed us to be very fruitful in. But while you're on this journey, and you're going all the way through the church, sometimes, which is usual and normally and predictable, you'll find some things that are broken. You'll find some things that are in distress. You'll find things that are leaning towards reproachful. You'll find things that are out of order. You'll find things that can be improved and things that can be added to strengthen the muscle and, and, and the rearranging of things that allow the flow to go just a little bit better inside the congregation, inside the church, so that God's glory and his brightness can be seen and we begin to assess the real condition of the church. You've not decided what you're going to do about them yet. You just take a note of the real condition. You're coming to a recognition, and that's why we call that the word discovery, the first journey the church will be on. We're going to discover. We're going to discover. We're going to get on our horse and ride through the church like Nehemiah did and see what it's looking like and what's going on. And so he viewed and he probed and he took notes and he had a team of people with him and then they came back as a congregation. He sat down with a whole body of people in Jerusalem, and he spoke to them exactly the assessment that was noted and the condition. And so there's a consensus with the people after he viewed the walls. Jerusalem lies in waste. The gates are burned with fire. Such a need to look at the assessment, the real condition. And so you not only assess it yourself, Sometimes it's good to have someone not connected in that area to assess. You may have a certain ministry in the church. You may have a team of people with you. You may be a, on a committee. You may be got a little function. Maybe you do it every week, once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is. But what's wise, we're going to ask you to do your own assessment. We're going to ask you to report back to us what you think and what you see as a real condition of your ministry. What's going on? We want you to tell us all the good, all the great, all the spiritual, all the victories, and all the, all the scores and all the points you've scored in this ministry. But we want you to go a little deep and be honest and let us know what you think about your ministry by way of brokenness or distress or need, you see. What, what, what you see could be improved in your ministry or your committee or your function in the church or your involvement. And we go a little step further. We're not only going to let you do it for your group, we're going to get some people on the outside to assess you as well. 
and they're going to look in, and they're going to give you their assessment of what's going on. I think that's good. By the way, you did some of this about four months ago. I got 62 pages in my office from your comments. That you did some assessing around here, personally assessment. You wrote some notes, and you began giving your opinion about this ministry and that ministry and this function and this worship and all these things. We're going to review some of that again in a way that's helpful for the church. Family, let's, let's talk about the condition of our church. We're not giving the answers yet. We're just drawing a consensus. We're going to view the walls. We're going to ride the horse, and we're going to take note. Hopefully, we can really see the real value, the real condition that the church is in. And I introduced you to something, a thought in this journey, how helpful this is. You don't have to fear this thing. You don't have to be afraid. I'm here to hold your hand and walk you through it. I'm, I'm going to show you how you can do this peacefully. You're going to enjoy this journey. We're going to come back and talk at time to time, smaller groups, maybe larger groups, maybe the whole congregation, and be able to think, this is what God has presented to us in a way of our own condition. And so the consensus was among the many, verse 16 and verse number 17. And notice everyone was involved in this consensus. So it was all the Jews and the others in verse 16, verse number 17. He called it the we. Did he not? He said to the we that are here. That's who he was describing. It is to us. And he said, notice, uh, as, he, as he referenced all of them that were there, and he said, you see the distress that we are in and all the condition that presently there. So, Notice in this journey, everyone is involved with the consensus. We want to hear. We want you to speak. Uh, we, we want you to do it with a good spirit and with gentleness and with cooperation. Uh, you, you don't need to be ugly to anybody if they seem to fail and they won't meet your standard. You, you can talk about it, perhaps. Uh, there'll be some ground rules when we start talking about the real condition of the church. But it's just coming to an honest conversation with the family of God about the real condition. And notice from that consensus, everyone that was involved, he begins to break it down a little further. And so they said from this consensus, you know what it did? When Jerusalem noticed the real condition, it created a huge desire to do something about it. Chapter 1, it's just Nehemiah all by himself. Only he's broken. He's the only one weeping. He's the only one confessing. He's the only one mourning. He's the only one fasting. He's the only one praying. He's all by himself. He's not even been in Jerusalem yet. He's still far away. It's only him. But you just go one page of your Bible to chapter number 2. He's already back in Jerusalem. He's already talked with the people. They've already evaluated. They've already assessed. And now the whole congregation, all of Jerusalem, sees how bad this place lies in waste. Reproachful, distressful. There ain't no God's glory in this particular town right now in this day and age. It's gone by a long shot. It was not the design, nor was it the desire of God to see Jerusalem in the ruins that she remained for 150 years. And if we'd ever see the heart of God, as you saw Jerusalem, 
if you could ever catch the heart of God as he sees your church or sees your personal life, it'll make a difference. And here's the difference it'll make. It'll make you want to repent and change and do something back to get God's smiling face and his glory and his power. So the consensus was there. So notice in verse number 18, he said, you see the distress, verse 17? I told them, verse 18, of the hand of my God, which has been good upon me, and also the king's words that he has spoken to me. So they said, Nehemiah didn't say it. Transition pastor didn't say it. Transition team didn't say it. A few men didn't say it. The king said, and the people spoke, let's rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. I like that. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse number 6. We'll get to this next week in closing. Chapter 4, verse number 6. So we, here they are again. There's the we. There's the church. There's Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Another page, chapter 6, and verse number 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. The wall was completed. Listen, you'd have never had Nehemiah chapter 2 as it spoke about the urgency. Let's do something about this. Let's rise up. Let's get her done. Let's do this together. Let's build. So they rose up for this great work. Chapter 4, halfway done. Chapter 6, completed in 52 days. So back to verse 20 of chapter 2. Nehemiah answered and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. You have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Speaking to those three Jews that were on the inside opposing them. But notice, before the desire to want to do something to get God's glory and to rebuild this wall, they took time to view and to assess and had a consultation, a consensus with the people. And I like this process. I've seen it over and over. It works. And so I just want to remind you that as we do this, chapter 2, verse 17, we'll do some assessing, do some evaluating, asking God to show us our hearts and the real condition in order that we can have the increased desire to want to change the condition that we're in. That's my prayer for Salem Baptist. And so I pray that you'll be patient. I pray that you'll be considerate. I pray that you'll be willing. I pray that every person here will be involved and you'll help Salem, help the church, and be involved to consider the things that are needed that represent the glory of God. And God will prosper you in such a way that we go to the next part of our discussion. We begin to see the discerning things that are needed 
for the wall to be built. That'll be the lesson on next week. Father, speak to our hearts as we continue our transition period here these next few weeks. I pray that the Spirit of God will fall upon their congregation in a way that will help them to see their real condition, to walk through a time of repentance, the consideration of change, and a return back to your glory. Father, I pray that that you would allow Satan, such as Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the opposition to be refuted and opposed from the church rising, to be strengthened and helped, to be improving, and to finding things that are needed in the ministries here that will help the church be stronger and ever better. I pray the church will prosper, like we read in verse 20. I pray there'll be great success. I pray there'll be much more fruit than ever before if we could ever be successful in this first journey on the horse and evaluating and assessing honestly with each other the condition and the need that allows us to be so hopeful because of the great God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.